Can you buy your way to greatness? And if so, is the purchaser truly great? I remember reading about this one story about how an author basically bought his way onto the New York Times bestseller list. You can actually do that. Buy your way onto this list. He, and maybe whoever else he was consulting, maybe the marketers, the promoters, whatever it was, they, they went about working the system. They bought, he bought his own books in the right geographical areas, right, working the algorithm or whatever it is. He bought his own books in the right geographical areas, in the right markets, and so bought his way onto the New York Times bestseller list and bought for himself the title of New York Times bestseller. I have no idea how often these practices happen. I bet you they happen a lot more often than we think. But looking at it from the outside, it's truly ironic. The title, New York Times bestseller, by all means, is a seemingly great title. It was purchased. He didn't have the greatness himself. So he apparently tried to manufacture it by buying it, which is no true greatness at all. In fact, if you have to go somewhere to buy this supposed greatness or power, it just reflects the fact that they are in complete neediness. We are in complete neediness in our lack of whatever it is that we want to buy. Think very practically, even in going to the grocery store, we lack food, and so we have to go and buy it. This, of course, is no true greatness at all. It is complete neediness. Those who have no power are the ones who strive for power. In our passage today, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ go to somewhere it has never been before. And what is highlighted today is one great man, supposedly great man, who comes in contact with the truly great one, that is Jesus Christ. And God establishes his greatness in this new place where the gospel had never gone before. That is the area of Samaria. Please join with me in turning to the book of Acts chapter 8. And we are in verses 9 to 25 this morning. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. While you have it there in your bulletin, I do encourage you to pull out your actual Bible. I think it helps promote biblical literacy for you guys to have to flip there. That's always a good thing. Um, now, there's no, that's not, there's no condemnation of the electronic Bible. Um, but turn there if you have it. The book of Acts is all about the risen Christ building his church through his disciples as they go about preaching the word of the gospel. Up and down now, we've seen God move in so many different ways in Jerusalem, right? The city of worship for the Israelites. Here in chapter 8, God widens the circle. He pushes the boundary, so to speak, of where the gospel was going. And he brings the gospel out from Jerusalem into the surrounding regions of Samaria, in the beginning of chapter 8, you can go ahead and skim that. A great persecution erupts there in Jerusalem. And therefore, many different Christians, apart from the apostles, are scattered into the surrounding areas. You look there in 8.1. They're scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. And what do they do in their scattering? They're not hiding. They're not shutting up. Look there in 8.4. They went about preaching the word of Christ, working miracles as well, that testified to the power of the name of Christ. 
and many in Samaria turn from their sins and believe on Jesus Christ. This is hugely significant. Think about big picture stuff. Reconciliation with God is not just for those who believe on Christ who are of the background of the Jews or Israelites or Hebrews. Salvation in Christ is for the nations. And that's what we see. Many Samaritans believe and they come to worship and praise the truly great one that is Jesus Christ. This is really important in relation to the hate culture going on today that's been in the news a lot. In the church, praise God for the church, we see the love of God go outwards from the gospel towards people of different tribes, tongues, and nations. Uniting people together, not simply for the cause of anti-hate or love, but specifically for love in Christ, the only lasting love, the only love that is strong enough to bind us all together. Yes, we might have come from different backgrounds, We might have different issues. Our cultures even might have had hostilities that go back decades, if not generations and hundreds of years. But praise God that according to the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down those barrier walls of hostility and unites us first to God and also to each other. That is really what we see here today. The gospel expanding out from not just Jew, not just to Jew, but to even these half-breeds as they were known. So let's see in our passage today how God's greatness is made known to the Samaritans, particularly this pagan man named Simon, also known as Simon Magus, which means Simon the Magician. We can think here in these different movements here, like how is God's power made known to the people? You can write that as kind of like the big question. How is God's power made known to the Samaritans? Number one, through the preaching of the gospel. God's power is made known to the people of Samaria through the preaching of the gospel, verses 9 to 13. Go ahead and look there, 8, 9 to 13. I'll I'll go ahead and read that right now. But there was a man named Simon, who's in Samaria, giving us a setting, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. You start there in that section in verse 9. You see right off the bat. Right, we dive a little bit deeper into this setting in which Philip and others, Philip was, was a deacon of the church, Philip and others, they arrive into, this, into the city of Samaria, the area of Samaria, after the great persecution there. And so in verse 9, he kind of backs up. Yeah, we did see a lot of people there in the beginning of chapter 8 come to know Christ, but then he backs up and lets us know, hold on, let's focus in on this one particular encounter. And, uh, you know, this is, this, again, he's giving the setting here, the spiritual soil of Samaria. Samaria is a really interesting place. The history is interesting. To summarize, they were half Jew and half other, Greek, Roman, etc. And they were considered by the Israelites to be lower, right? They're, they're, they're half-breeds, so to speak. They are impure in their Jewish blood. And their Judaism was impure. They only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, whereas Israel held to all of the Old Testament. Samaritans worshipped on their mountain, 
You think about Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. Uh, whereas Israel worshipped on the Mount of Jerusalem. Right, that's just the general history of it. But of course, just like Israel, we know that their hearts were tempted and they followed after other gods. They embraced paganism at various times. And that's what we see going on here with these people. According to our passage today, it's clear that a number of them were given to pagan practices. And, and they're giving their attention to Simon the Magician. He's a really well-known character. He's a supposedly great magician named Simon. And he has basically his own little kingdom, so to speak. It's clear, you look there uh, You look there at verses 10 and 11, they all paid attention to him. Right? He's gaining a great following. He's commanding the people's attention in the acts that he's doing. You don't really know what exactly he's doing in terms of this magic, but he's gaining their attention from the least of them to those who have no status to the greatest of them, to those with greatest status there in Samaria. Verse 11 makes clear that he was doing this for a long time. And people basically saw him as divine, or possessing the power of the divine. That's what verse 10 alludes to there um, when it speaks about where they say, this man is the power of God that is called great. They're either assigning him divine status or they think that in his magic or whatever he's doing, that he's wielding the power of the divine, the greatest power of the divine. So you can picture Simon, right? He has quite a little kingdom for himself. Pretty pleased with the magic he's doing. He's pleased with the position and the respect that the people are giving him. And Simon was telling them there in verse 9 that he himself was somebody great. Here, yellow flag should be going off. If you have to tell other people in a way that tries to convince them that I myself am great, something is wrong. But anyways, it's into this pagan environment that God himself shows himself as greater still. Remember, after this great persecution, Philip, the servant of the church, the deacon of the church in Jerusalem, he goes to Samaria, begins preaching the name of Christ. And of course, by God's sovereign power, Philip, or God works miracles through him, which testify to the power of Jesus. And we see the people's shift of attention. You look there in verse 12. But when they believed, they, the least to the greatest, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So you look there, they believe and they are baptized. They believe and they are baptized when they're hearing about the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Those two things go together, obviously. Now, now again, this is not very hard to picture, the shift of allegiances that we see going on. Now, we're not told what Simon's magic was. We know that there were certainly charlatans who went around town trying to rip people off, so he's like more or less a scam artist, a scammer. Uh, but we also know in the Bible that there are people who deal with sorcery. And this is condemned in the Bible. We're not entirely sure what exactly is going on. Maybe it's a mixture of both. I'm not entirely sure. But let's say he's like the magicians of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. And he's working his supposedly great miracles, uh, you know, in front of the people. And Simon says, look, I can turn the river red or I can make flies appear. And Philip comes about and he's saying, let me tell you about a guy who rose from the dead. Not only me, but don't believe my testimony only, but so many of the other Christians who are with me will tell you the same thing. And then go ahead and watch this. Christ, by his power, as he is the author of life, has given us the power to perform miracles. The lame are healed. The sick are made well. The blind see. 
all in the power of not our great name, but in the great name of Jesus Christ, the servant of God, the author of life. And it is in his name that salvation can be found alone. The result is that many people believe. And then their allegiances go away from Simon and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are baptized, which pictures death to sin on account of Christ's power and then resurrection to new life as Christ got up from the dead. They believe and then they transfer their allegiance, which is pictured in baptism. In their believing, we know that God opens the people's eyes to the greatness of God in Jesus Christ, specifically in his death on the cross for sin and then his resurrection and power to new life. And so what, and so what people turn from thinking about people in general, what people turn from is living for what they formerly thought was great, right? That's what's going on with the Samaritans. They think that Simon is great and the magic he's performing is great, but then they hear the gospel of the kingdom in Jesus Christ's name and they repent of their sins and they believe. They stop living for what they formerly thought was great and they worship the great one, Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us here today, let's say you're exploring Christianity, which is awesome. Glad that you guys are here. Know that we as Christians, members of First Baptist Church, we are people who believe in the great Christ. And his greatness far outshines anything else we can call great. Whether it be the so-called greatness of the world's pleasures and pursuits or the greatness of our own glory. We have seen one who is greater still that is Jesus Christ, who is the greatest. In some ways, all people are like Simon in that we work for our own greatness, just like Simon basically is doing. We seek to build our own little kingdoms. Maybe we seek to please ourselves or seek to please other people. Basically, Simon here, right? We're all like Simon. We're living our lives apart from God. Even though we all have been made by God and made for God. You think about magic, for example, right? That's trying to, to tap in or like sorcery or whatever it is, seances. That's trying to tap into a power that is of God's in general, that kind of power. And what's the purpose? It's to, you know, let's say you're calling up the dead or we see examples like that in the Old Testament. I've never seen this done in person, but we see examples in the Old Testament. These people are seeking these, these avenues of power for the benefit of themselves. Give me wisdom, God-like wisdom, God-like power, without God. That's what's going on here. That's what Simon is doing. He's trying to tap in and even wield some sort of divine power for his own benefit. Now, we might not be dealing in sorcery, but every member of our church who has become a Christian later on in life, right? You guys know what it's like to live for yourselves apart from God. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, praise God, we have seen something greater. If you're visiting, again, let me encourage you to ask the Christian who brought you and ask, why do you think God is great? Can you explain that to me again? And you, you hopefully, Lord willing, you're going to get into some awesome conversations as you talk about the greatness of his love, the greatness of his mercy and compassion to sinners, the greatness of his holiness, the greatness of his justice and his rule and his reign and his law and on and on and on. And if they became a Christian later on in life, ask them, what is it that you used to live for? And why is 
God greater still? Of course, we are all sinners, so we're going to tell you some, probably some pretty ugly things if we feel vulnerable enough about how we're tempted to think that things of the world are, in fact, great. But praise God that in conviction and repentance, as we turn our face back to the gospel, we are reminded again of Christ, who is greater still. We're not perfect, and we definitely struggle with the stumbles, but praise God, in the course of the Christian life, we return back to the great Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, I hope that if your non-Christian friend that you brought uh, asks you these questions, I hope you take the opportunity to have some awesome conversations, vulnerable conversations, about the greatness of Jesus Christ in effort to see more people come to acknowledge just how great and worthy he is. Did you notice, though, that in verse 13, Simon, the magician, was also among those who followed Philip? That's fascinating. Unfortunately, even though the passage says Simon believed and was baptized, or that's what's implied, uh, that's what's stated, the passage um, and Christian history, generally speaking, shows that Simon was not a true Christian. All he did was go through the motions. And that he followed Philip for all the wrong reasons. His belief in baptism were not genuine, and it seems he just continued wanting to use God for his own glory. He continues to want to use God for his own glory, even though he follows Philip. And this brings us to sort of the next movement here in our passage. You can think of this as uh, movement number two, point number two. God's greatness is displayed in the giving of his spirit. God's greatness is displayed in the giving of his own spirit. Uh, you look there at 14 to 17, and I'll read that now. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, when they laid their hands on them, or then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The apostles, what's going on here is the apostles, they know that the gospel has gone to Samaria for the very first time. They send out these two delegates, Peter and John. These two apostles, they pray for the Samaritan believers, and then God grants these believers the Spirit. Now, it's really important, actually, that we address this theological issue here. It definitely is interesting, and we need to spend some degree of time in addressing, how is it that they believe in Jesus, but then they receive the Spirit after they believe? Like, in a chronological sense. These Samaritans are said to have believed and been baptized in Jesus, but then they receive the Spirit after. Fascinating. Now, some may ask from this passage, wait a minute, you, you might be moved to feel like, wait a minute, we are Christians, I believe in Jesus, is it possible that I don't have the Spirit? Maybe that throws you into some sort of confusion and maybe some sort of fear. Maybe, you, maybe, unfortunately, you doubt whether or not you're really been saved. Or maybe you can look at it from a church perspective and say, hold on a second. Should the church today expect, expect what we see here? That many of us believe, but maybe at a later time, maybe 10 years from now, 20 years from now, then we'll be baptized by the Spirit. Is what we see here in the book of Acts normative for today? Take some Pentecostal theologies and their understanding of, quote-unquote, the baptism of the Spirit 
Some Pentecostals say that one becomes a Christian and then later on they have some sort of second experience and then they are baptized in the Spirit and maybe many times over and over and over again and then it's accompanied by certain signs. Here to that, I would say I disagree. What we see in Acts is not normative for today. What we see in Acts is not normative for today. Let me tell you why. First, we know that other passages in the New Testament say that all Christians have been baptized in the Spirit. Let's take some time relatively quickly and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is definitely worth spending a little bit of time on as many people come here in this church have come from Pentecostal-like backgrounds, charismatic-like backgrounds. Some people here have been worried, you know, am I truly a Christian because I don't have certain signs and whatnot? So it's good to spend time on this. 1 Corinthians 12 Chapter, uh, sorry, verse 13. Now notice, right, Paul's writing to the whole entire church, not just some Christians, but all Christians, the whole entire church. And in fact, he's just talking about himself too, meaning Christians outside of the Corinthian church. He says there in verse 13, for in one spirit, we, not only Paul who's outside the Corinthian church, but also the Corinthian church, we all we're baptized into one body, right? There you see the spirit and you have baptism. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. It's not a passage that says only some Christians have the spirit. Not only, it's not saying that only some Christians, maybe only serious Christians, maybe only super sanctified Christians have the spirit and have been baptized by the spirit of God. That's not what he says. He says, we all have been baptized by the Spirit. And there it means conversion. Conversion equals baptism of the Spirit. Now, in certain cases, it means more than that. But at the very least, it is conversion. You can think of Romans chapter 8, verses 9. He says that if anybody is in Christ, you are in the Spirit. So pastorally, if you're, you know, you, maybe you're a little freaked out about what you see here. You're wondering if you're a genuine Christian. These passages are clear that if you are in Christ Christian, you are in the Spirit. You've been baptized by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You are converted. Here's another reason. Another reason why we should not take the Samaritans' experience or even the apostles' experience, because that was similar, right? They believed in Jesus. Pentecost didn't happen until Acts chapter 2. Why we should not take this as normative today is because the book of Acts is so abnormal. It's incredibly unique. It is absolutely unique in God's plan of salvation history. Take Jesus ascending into heaven. That happens once in God's plan of salvation in all of his human history. So you should know that, yes, something's a little strange here, or at least different, unique. The church has not been established yet. God is building his church for the very first time. He's laying the foundation. Take Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The pouring out of the Spirit, beginning the church age, happens once in human history. And then as we go through Acts, it's like we're standing on the fault line of God's redemption history as we go from the old covenant to the new covenant in Christ. That's what we see going on in Acts chapter 2. Spirit is poured out in Pentecost. That's what is highlighted here in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans. And if you look at the big picture of Acts, what stands out from this passage is that these believing Samaritans are shown to all 
to be among God's people as well. You guys get that? Gospel goes to Samaria for the very first time, and here God is showing everybody that the believing Samaritans are among God's people as well, legitimately so. So the gospel that was preached goes to, that was preached in Jerusalem goes to Samaria for the very first time. People believe in the name of Jesus Christ that they are hearing risen from the dead for the very first time. The apostolic delegate, Peter and John, are sent there for the very first time. And keep in mind, right, John was one who, wrong, who was wrongly inclined to pray that God would destroy the Samaritans. He suggested that at one point in time. Should I call down fire from heaven and destruction so that these Samaritans die? Those were in his not holy sinful days. But here he rightly prays that these believing Samaritans would receive the spirit and that they genuinely believe, would believe in the gospel. And what does God do? And in an incredibly public act involving these two apostles, in front of these Jewish Christians, in front of the Samaritans, God gives the Samaritan believers the gift and seal of the Spirit also. This is a God-given statement of the inclusion of the believing Samaritans into the people of God, not just Israelites, but Samaritans as well. Not just Jews and half-Jews, as we know from the rest of the book of Acts, but eventually the non-Jews, as we're going to see, as well. So turn over to Acts chapter 10. Turn over there. Acts chapter 10. 45, verse 45, there the Jewish Christians who had followed Peter to the Gentiles in also in very public acts, right? They see the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles and they're amazed. Why? 1045, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Our passage is making the same point. Truly salvation is found by any and all who can't call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Salvation is never restricted to one group, not just Jew, but also half-Jews. Not just Jews and half-Jews, but as we see, even Gentiles like ourselves. So given how unique the period of Acts is, it's most helpful to seek out other passages of Scripture to help us understand these particular passages in Acts. So that's why we looked at 1 Corinthians. That's why we looked at Romans. As we know that those verses were given to all of the churches for our practice. Again, the book of Acts is utterly unique, and we're seeing people go from the old covenant to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And all who are in the new covenant, if you truly believe in Jesus, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, we can talk about being filled with the Spirit. That is an ongoing thing, something that we are to seek. But that's very different than being baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. In Scripture, we're never commanded to seek uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled, and we are to seek that, but that's not baptism in the Spirit. <clears throat> baptism, baptism in the Spirit is conversion. Okay, thank you for bearing with us here. Back to Simon. Remember how I mentioned that Simon wanted to use God for his own glory? We see why there in verses 19, or sorry, 18 and 19, Simon sees the Holy Spirit given to Christians when the apostles lay their hands on them. Simon gets the bright idea to try and buy it. He's like the ultimate opportunistic guy, going to buy everything he can so that he can be great. And so he, 
he sees what's going on here. He says, well, shoot, I want that power. How about I buy it? You look there at verses 18 and 19. Now, when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this here is what makes, Phil, uh, makes Simon seem like a total scammer. So much for his own inherent greatness, though, Mr. Magician. He again has to buy this power. There's no inherent greatness in anybody who has to buy anything. Like the New York Times bestseller here, Simon tries to buy the title of Samaria's most powerful, greatest miracle worker. And again, it just proves that he has no inherent greatness. But who is it in this passage and in all of Acts and in all of Scripture that displays himself to be truly great and powerful and worthy of praise? Of course, the answer is Jesus Christ. God displays his greatness and the greatness of his eternal son in the gospel. The good news of Jesus. God not only creates the world through Christ, but Christ the eternal son takes on flesh and enters into the created world on account of his steadfast love and mercy to save sinners in his great mercy. Christ is both ruler over all and servant to needy sinners who cannot deliver themselves. And so in his infinite righteousness, he dies on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, satisfying the wrath of God for his people. And then you take the resurrection, right? There's power. Christ not only lived and died, but in his power, he got up from the dead, fulfilling all of God's promises and showing that, showing all that he has power over sin, death, and Satan. And in his great love for his enemies, he calls all to turn from our sin and to believe upon him and be saved, reconciled to our creator, forgiven of our sin. This is the gospel that God has entrusted his church with, and it is the gospel that they went about preaching. It's the gospel that we too are to bring to the end of the earth and by God's power, what do we see him doing? God continues to bring people into his kingdom by his powerful and effective grace. And here we have the first Samaritan harvest. And then in future chapters, we see the first Gentile harvest. Friend Simon here presents a lesson for us today, multiple lessons. If we had time, we'd expand on them. But Simon here has to work for his own greatness. I wonder, guys, how are you working for your own greatness. You realize that the thoughts that you have that keep you up at night, the plans that you're going to make, the moves that you're going to make, the things you're going to buy, the kingdom that you're going to build, it all just really goes to show that you have no inherent greatness because you have to think about those things. You have to scheme. God never does. Simon here, he works for his own greatness. He speaks to other people trying to convince them that he himself is great. Friends, you realize that this never happens with God. It is out of his own inherent greatness that God speaks and creates. And that it's his people that speak of God's own greatness. Now, certainly he speaks of his own greatness. You see that clearly in the word of God. But it is never to gain what he does not deserve. He speaks about it because he helps us remember who is truly praiseworthy. 
He speaks about his greatness in order that he would receive what is his true due. God is the shot caller who never lacks. As he is all powerful, no power is out of his control, and he will be wielded by no one, certainly not Simon. This is why Simon's proposal to buy the power of the Spirit is so off base and worthy of the apostle's condemnation. He's trying to wield the power of God for himself. He doesn't want the Spirit so that Christ would be praised. He doesn't want the Spirit so that Christ's mission would be fulfilled. He wants to wield the Spirit so that his own name would be great and that Simon's mission would continue. Does that sound familiar to us here? Some of you guys might come from something called the prosperity gospel, where maybe you're taught something of, like you say these certain incantations and say the name of Jesus a certain amount of time, or if you just pray or if you just manifest something, then something that you want will come into existence. Friends, you guys you have to realize that that is straight up paganism. That's what Simon's doing. He's trying to tap into God's divine world so that he can wield and, ma- and manufacture and manipulate God's power and wisdom and etc. All so that he can be great. That is the prosperity gospel at its heart. I pray, I get rich. I pray, I stay healthy. So that what? Oftentimes, it is not so that Christ's name would be praised, but so that the people's name would be praised. Friends, if you want to check yourself and see how often you are imbibing that kind of false doctrine. How often are you praying that even in persecution you would remain faithful? Does, does your Christian life look like Christ's life and the apostles' life? That for Jesus ends in a cross of suffering? If you can't comprehend that and you think the Christian life means you will be wealthy, prosperous, you have unfortunately imbibed a lot already of the prosperity gospel. Christian, the Christian life is a cross life. It is a life that oftentimes, according to scripture, involves a great deal of suffering. Praise God, though, that he is faithful even in the midst of it. And he wields his power We all will suffer and find ourselves facing death. Praise God, though, that he promises, not in this life, but in the next, he will raise us from the dead and we will have fellowship with God. The Christian life is a cross life. You look how the apostles respond to Simon's suggestion here in verse 20. Peter says very strongly to hell's destruction with your money and you. He says to hell, hell's destruction with you and your money. That's what it says, basically, literally, this hell of destruction. Again, he wants the power over God himself, but has no respect for the all-powerful one that is God. It shows that while he may have been baptized, while he may have believed, he just went through the motions and that he was not truly born again. He's like other so-called disciples who follow for a time, but in the course of time, show themselves to never have truly believed in the first place. Do you guys have a category like that in Scripture, or in your mind, based on Scripture? That, that we here today even could be following for a time, but show ourselves to never have truly believed in the first place? 
First John chapter 2.19 says, they, speaking about people who left Christ, left the church, they went out from us. He says, but look, I want you guys to understand how we understand these people's leaving. He says, but they were not of us. They were never really truly of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is why Peter calls him, Simon, to repent of his wickedness and then to pray for forgiveness. You look there in verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And then he uses this really, this really strong language about his own heart and his state there. He is in bondage to sin. This bitterness, the gall of bitterness that only leads to poison. That's his heart, really. It's just poisoned. And so he's in bondage to Scripture. But isn't it awesome, thinking about the greatness of God, that he is great in his grace. And that he still offers opportunity to Simon to repent despite his great wickedness. And here again, you see God's great love in the gospel. Though there is great wickedness in man's heart of sin, God's great love calls all to repent of your sin and believe on Jesus Christ, to turn to the great one, to stop living for yourselves, and to turn to Christ, who is the greatest. And though Simon asked to pray there in verse 24, unfortunately, Scripture does not give us uh, many clues as to what happened in him. History, though, does. If you're a history buff, you might find this fascinating. There was a Christian named Justin Martyr who was a Samaritan in the second century. And then another Christian named Irenaeus, also in the second century. In their writings, they actually address this man named Simon. And they go on to report and give no indication that Simon truly repented, but he continued in darkness, going off to Rome, associating himself with, from what I understand, continuing to do these wicked things, prostitution, and things like this. And that's why, well, that's why it says there in verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced. History shows that it's not that he previously practiced because he genuinely turned to Jesus, but that he previously practiced in Samaria because he went on to Rome to do even more bad things. Simon here is a lesson for us once again. If you are a non-Christian, let me encourage you. Do not follow Simon's example who continued in sin. He realized that even in hearing John and Peter's call for him to repent of his sins, that is grace too. But he went on to reject God's grace, showing no true appreciation for it and no true recognition as Christ of Christ as Lord. Let me encourage you and call you to turn from your sins Turn from living for your own greatness and live for your creator, Jesus Christ, the Supreme One. As we conclude here, we, I want you guys to think big picture. We see God's power manifested in a third way, not just in bringing the gospel to Samaria, not just in giving the spirit to the Samaritan believers, but in accomplishing the second stage of the mission of the church. You remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Let me go ahead and encourage you to turn there. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He tells his disciples, before he gives them 
the Spirit, right? He tells them, look, this is your mission. I want you guys to be my witnesses. You are my witnesses, and you're going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, my gospel, my good news, that salvation can be found in me by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I want you to take that to the ends of the world, first to Jerusalem. We already saw that. That's in chapters basically 2 through 7. Here we see the second stage being fulfilled, Samaria. And there you see God's power. Of course, as we move on through the book of Acts, we're going to see God's power displayed to the Gentiles, that is, to the end of the earth. And so here with Philip and others heralding the gospel, seeing many people turn, repent of their sins, and believe and have joy in Jesus Christ, the second stage, the second mission of the church by God's grace is fulfilled by his own promise. Christ is the supreme one who is building his church through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, and he will accomplish all of his purposes. Where his name goes, so his praise follows, and the church is built. And undergirding the church's mission and and the gospel is God's great, great compassion for sinners in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are indeed all-powerful because we know that the heart of sin is powerful, but we thank you that you are greater still and that, Lord Jesus, you are the one who died on the cross for sin, defeating sin, death, and Satan. We thank you that we can trust in you because we know we can't trust in ourselves. We struggle all the time. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect, righteous obedience because we need it. We praise you for your active obedience as you lived a righteous life. And we thank you for the righteousness that has been imputed to your people, not by anything we have done as if salvation is by works. We thank you for your righteousness, which is given to your people justification through faith alone in Christ and his great work. In your name we pray these things. Amen.